Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. <laughs> well, I think most people already know me as the, the guy that cut his arm off. At least that's how when folks uh, like, wait, are you the guy from the movie uh, who wasn't in the movie? His name is Aaron Ralston. And yes, he's that guy from the movie 127 Hours. But there's so much more to the story of the mountain climber who was trapped under a boulder and had to cut off his own arm in order to survive. Today on the show, extreme adventuring. Where does the so-called bug come from? And how much is too much when it comes to passion and drive? Plus, lessons from Aaron on suffering and the idea of reframing our adversity as a way of finding an advantage in any difficult situation. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser. Welcome to All The Wiser Podcast, where we share jaw-dropping stories of extreme adversity and the inspiring wisdom that comes on the other side of pain. We also donate $2,000 an episode to charities and celebration of our incredible guest. Before we get started with today's episode, I have an ask of you. Ratings and reviews are the magic sauce when it comes to helping other people find All The Wiser. Our intention has always been to inspire people with the stories we share. And by rating and reviewing the podcast, you help others discover these stories. Pretty simple. Just click on All The Wiser, not the episode, but the show. Scroll all the way down to ratings and reviews and click on write a review. We're going to start sharing reviews at the end of the podcast. So I hope you will consider playing a part and helping us reach our goal of 1,000 reviews. Now on to today's show, where we share one of the most incredible survival stories we have ever told on this podcast. Introducing the incredibly smart, brave, real-life guy from the movie, Aaron Ralston. Hello, Aaron, and welcome to All the Wiser. Hi, Kimmy. It's great to be here. So, Aaron, how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? <laughs> well, I think most people already know me as the, the guy that cut his arm off. At least that's how when folks uh, like, wait, are you the guy from the movie uh, who wasn't in the movie? <laughs> but I'm uh, an outdoor adventurer, mountaineer. Yeah, I'm also a father of, of two 
elementary and middle school age kids that I live in Colorado and I'm an author, a public speaker, and have uh, become over the last 18 and a half years, uh, yeah, a motivational storyteller of sorts. I really love getting to share about my experiences. Uh, again, people at least broadly know about the, the guy who got trapped out, out by a boulder and had to cut his arm off. And it's been the greatest gift of my life. And, and I'm, I'm really blessed to be able to share it. So thank you for giving me the opportunity here today. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I've loved the process of researching your story and looking back on old footage and interviews. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I want to start with the early years. Aaron is a young boy. Tell me a little bit about the backdrop of your childhood and growing up. Yeah, I, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, I was born in Ohio and just the yeah the middle of a fairly rural area. My parents, uh, we all moved out to Colorado then in 1987. I was an intelligent kid. I did very well in school and middle school being just what middle school is for most people. It was a very difficult time uh, in my life coming in the, the new kid in a new state at a new school. And yeah, I'd, I'd never been skiing before. And it was just all the chatter around the school about where everybody went to ski on the weekends. And the teasing and bullying and even being ostracized, uh, just being excluded from from so many of uh, just the interests and social interactions around me, it was the, the largest factor in what then led me to move towards the outdoors. It became very important to me to learn to ski and to become excellent at it. Uh, and then beyond that, once I, I learned about the 14ers, these 14,000 foot high mountains that we have in Colorado, uh, that it's it's quite the, the popular thing to climb them, uh, to even try to climb all of them. And by the time I had gotten through high school and graduated at the top of my class. Uh, again, the, these kind of compensations. Uh, well, if it, I'll show everybody else that I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> they think I'm not as good as them. I'm better than them. It laid these these very foundational, I'm going to you know, acknowledge the inadequacies, this, this sense that I had something to prove in my life. By the time I graduated from college, I went to Carnegie Mellon. I graduated at the top of my class there again. I, I got a, a career in mechanical engineering, started at Intel Corporation uh, out in the, the Southwest. And that was where not only climbing 14ers, but doing it in a way where I was trying to do something that no one else had ever done before to, to really make my mark on the outdoor adventuring landscape as it is, that that, that was my, my introduction uh, to the truly extreme aspects of adventuring. Thank you for the connection and the relationship to part of, it sounds like a huge part of you really understanding now your drive to perform and achieve. And as you look to nature and the backdrops of the mountains as for this outlet that's driven by something much deeper inside you. And well, you had early professional success after Carnegie Mellon and, and really moving into a career and quote unquote, sort of corporate traditional career, you decide that that is in fact not you, not your calling, and you end up back in Colorado. And that is going to set the stage for, you know, where we're going to dive deep today, which is your accident in 2003. So can you tell me about, you know, what brought you back to Colorado and where are you in your life in 2003? How old are you? Sort of what's happening and what does your life look like at this time? 
Yeah. By the spring of 2002, I had realized after five years of working in this corporate environment uh, and, and really having almost moved out of the engineering realm and more into project management, which I didn't find as, as invigorating and fulfilling. And it was just uh, having too many bosses and it was too many spreadsheets and not enough kind of in the, in the equations and the actual problem solving that I really loved that I decided that this career had served its purpose. I paid off my college debts. Uh, I, Already by that point, bought a house and uh, turned it into a rental property, quit my job and decided that I wanted to become a mountain guide. So I, I left working for Intel Corporation. I moved to Aspen, Colorado, where I took a job at a little mountain shop uh, as a retail sales clerk. And by the the winter of 2002-2003, I had climbed many more of the of these 14ers in the Aspen area, which were some of the, the most difficult and deadly of all of the mountains. In fact, two of the mountains there, the Maroon Bells, are known as the Deadly Bells. And it was front page news when I climbed them in the winter. It was front page news another time when I, I climbed Capitol Peak is, uh, again, one of, one of the most technically demanding and, and difficult of all of the 14,000 foot mountains that we have. And it was moving me along in, in both this aspiration of, towards a career, uh, but it was also having this other side effect of, of kind of uh, turning me into a hardcore individual uh, where really relationships didn't matter as much uh, that, I mean, I had friends, but I, I really didn't let anybody get too close because there was a passion at, at work on me rather than me exerting this passion like uh, in, in my life. And it was like, it was I, almost I was the subject of, of this passion that was, that was pushing me to climb the, these, these very difficult mountains. So earlier in the year of 2003, which we're going to talk about, there was an avalanche. And as you're talking about your intensity, your drive to achieve, to conquer these mountains, sort of balanced with risk-taking in your relationships. I think there's some some good anecdotes here. So can you tell us what happened that winter with your friends on the mountain? We were out on a skiing excursion from based at one of the huts where we had stayed the night. And two of my friends and I were on top of a peak called Resolution Mountain in central Colorado, uh, kind of between Vale and Leadville. And there had been a massive storm that had, had loaded incredible amounts of snow on the summit of this peak, uh, which of course is very enticing for going out and skiing down it. But at the same time, it was an extreme avalanche hazard moment. And as we skied down, taking our turns, uh, we got to a, a spot where one of my friends fell and unbeknownst to all three of us who were momentarily clustered together uh, in the middle of this enormous tree, treeless bowl, just a, a mountainside 3,000 foot long of, of snow, an avalanche released above us right at the summit uh, with a, a crown line, which is the, the depth of the snow that starts to slide of over 18 feet. Now, Colorado, we don't usually have snowpack that gets anywhere close to this, but again, because of the storm that had just unloaded, it, this was like an Alaska grade six level avalanche. And it, it ripped uh, almost a, a horizontal mile wide and tore down this mountainside, eventually running more than a half mile down the mountainside. 
singular blocks of snow uh, the size of tractor trailers or railroad boxcars. And the fact that then, of course, we were buried, but that we were able to extract ourselves uh, miraculously and all survived was yeah, just an almost unexplicable kind of uh, happenstance that, that it was just sheer luck that we were not all three killed in that avalanche. The result of that, though, was even though we, we did all make it out with our lives, that I lost two friends that day because they blamed me for what happened. And I understand that. I definitely had pushed to, to go out and to ski and that kind of gung-ho you know, damn the torpedoes sort of attitude, does not have a, a place in the outdoors, especially when when you are your own best safety. And someone who's being too much of a daredevil and uh, you know, pressuring others, that that is that is the opposite of what you need in a partner. So I learned some lessons from that. But at the same time, I think you can easily understand where I was at a place that I was not assessing the risks in in perhaps the most balanced way. Yes, and this day in Utah does not start as a assessing, you know, high risk day. It starts as a sun-filled, beautiful day based on what I've heard you share. So take us to that morning. You're you make the drive from Colorado to Utah. What happens next? Yeah, the this five-day vacation that I had, uh, I started off with all my gear in my truck driving out to Utah with uh, really without even a plan. I'd had other plans that fell through with some other friends, and now I was on my own. And I, I set out to get some sand in my shoes and some you know, sun on my face after this this hard winter that I'd been through where I'd, I'd gotten frostbite on nine of my fingers from climbing Capitol Peak and survived the avalanche. Uh, had been really pushing hard. And so it was a vacation that as I set out on that day, April 26, 2003, it was a walk in the park that I, I anticipated. It was just, I'm going to ride my bike 15 miles and then hike 15 miles back through this canyon to, to get back to my vehicle. And uh, that it was all very casual, no winter storms, no avalanches, no blizzards, all none of the rest of that. Yeah, I was just in my happy place taking pictures. Uh, I ran into two young women who were out on a, on the same canyon in Blue John Canyon in the upper stretches of it. We hiked together, kind of made quick friends and planned to get together the following day that I continued down through the canyon on my way to my vehicle. They exited out back to where they had stashed their vehicle and by the time here we are, it's Saturday afternoon now at about 2.45 or so, I get into a, a stretch of this slot canyon that's only about three feet across. It's about 50 feet deep in this spot. Uh, it was more like 100 feet, 150 feet deep in, in a couple other places, but that's still you know, a chasm in this sandstone canyon that I'm moving down over rocks that are wedged between the walls. And at the critical moment, uh, dangling from one of these boulders uh, as I'm trying to move down to the continuing canyon floor, and I pulled this rock loose, uh, my full body weight hanging from it. I, I fall to the bottom of the canyon, only have just a moment of instinct to respond, to, to get my hands up and try to protect myself from this huge three-foot diameter rock that's falling from my skull. And as I, I did that, I, I, I was able to successfully get my head, my torso out from underneath this falling boulder. 
but I obviously exposed my hands and my left hand was smashed just uh, in the briefest moment against the left wall of the canyon. The boulder ricocheted. It smashed my right hand against the boulder. As, as it rebounded once more, my right arm slipped into the gap between the boulder and the wall of the canyon and the rock came crashing down, becoming wedged between the walls of the canyon once more, just as it had been, but about six feet lower down, now right in front of my chest. And it's ensnared my right arm in this vice grip of a handshake, having crushed yeah, my wrist and my hand between the boulder itself and the wall of the canyon. So your body is pinned between the rock and the wall. Exactly. And the, the, the panic, the, the pain that, that erupts in me, the, I lost control of myself, my reactions, but I was able to eventually after an hour of trying to brute force my way through, trying to get free, I realized I'm, I'm not going to force my way out of this. I'm going to think my way out of this. And the mechanical engineering, the problem solving, all of this comes back. I oftentimes refer to the, this moment where I dumped out my backpack and I'm going through my gear trying to take an inventory. And I'm remembering that scene from Apollo 13 where they, they dump out the cardboard box on the conference room table and say, we've got to build an oxygen filter. They've only got two hours. Go. And that it was this kind of crisis management mode that I went into. No one knows where you are. You're 20 miles from the nearest paved road completely by yourself. No way to communicate. Obviously, as you shared the first thing, you panic. How do you move from panic to problem solve while dealing with the physical pain that you're enduring in your body? Yeah, that I was able to, to I don't know, compartmentalize is, isn't maybe the right word, but to, to at least recognized that the pain that was pulsing from my arm, this this incredible sensation that it was a thousand times more intense than anything I'd ever felt before in my life, that that was no longer serving a purpose. It, if pain is intended to, to relay information, I got the message after the first few minutes. So an hour into this is, uh, okay, that's, that is no longer important. I, I get it. Yes, danger, except the more dangerous thing than the rock was my reaction to the rock. And it potentially, at least if I kept exerting myself, exhausting myself, that I would very quickly deplete myself and die. I, I, I have very limited food, water. As, as you mentioned, I'm out in the middle of a vast wilderness. But I, I kept uh, in that place, in the bottom of this canyon, I kept myself focused on what I could do in order to get myself out. And panic was not going to serve me, punching the rock, trying to rip my arm free of the boulder. Like these things were not going to work. I couldn't lift the rock with my my bare hand. So I started yeah, brainstorming that maybe I'd be able to rig up the climbing gear that I had with me, rope, some carabiners, uh, some webbing, uh, just th these various items to, to create a, a mechanical advantage system and try to lift the rock, like almost as if I had a, a block and tackle like pulley system. I was thinking through rationing my supplies, my food and water that I did have in order to try to survive long enough that somebody might eventually find me, perhaps be able to rescue me and get me out, that I was thinking about sending smoke signals or using a mirror that I had to try to reflect light to a passing airplane. And I mean, a lot of kind of 
you know, fringy ideas. Yeah, that, but that, that engineering brain, that, you know, that bright problem solving mind clearly comes into play. And, and what do you have mm-hmm. with you as far as, you know, provisions and what is with you at this time? Yeah, that I, I had one liter of water when I became trapped. I'd started out the day with a gallon uh, because of the, the duration of the mountain bike ride and the hike that I was doing. It was 30 miles all told that I had already, yeah, drank over three liters of it though. So uh, just one Nalgene bottle full of water and then two little convenience store burritos that were the remains of my food supply for the day because I'd already eaten all of my bars and yeah, chocolate and trail mix and muffin that I had with me. So all of the rest of it was gone. It's certainly not enough to survive on for any extended period of time. The other supplies that I had besides the climbing gear, I I had this pocket knife, this multi-tool knife that was a piece of junk. (laughs) Frankly, it had come free with a flashlight that that my mom had bought a prior year and she only wanted the flashlight. She put this little multi-tool in my stocking stuffer, you know, kind of thing that it ended up in my backpack because I'd forgotten my my good knives uh, back in Aspen when I'd been packing up. And that fateful circumstance, but still left me with this, this tool that I knew, okay, I can, I can do a couple things with it. Maybe I can carve my way free, like trying to excavate my hand, digging out enough of the rock around where my hand was trapped to, to get myself free. But even within the first truly the first hour that I was trapped there, I knew that I was going to have to use that knife in order to cut through my arm. I, I even said it out loud, Aaron, you're going to have to cut your arm off. Of course, in the beginning, I was like, I, I don't want to cut my arm off. <laughs> but then as uh, I, I came to understand, okay, that is an option, but it is at the bottom of the list. And I was going to work through everything else that I could which is how I spent the first afternoon that I was there, the the first evening working by headlamp, uh, trying to carve through the boulder, trying to remove enough sandstone to get myself free. But after 15 hours, the first night, all the way to the second morning, I'd only been able to etch away about half of a golf ball of sandstone. And I was going to have to remove more like half of a a basketball to get my, my arm out. And so that option failed. And as people weren't coming the, the girls I had met the day before, they, they were off on another hike. I didn't show up for our rendezvous. They didn't think anything of it. And by the second afternoon then, I was out of options, aside from trying to cut my arm off. I had devised a tourniquet. I put that on. Uh, it was the this wetsuit-like material, neoprene, that had been on my water reservoir backpack, the the camelback style with the the hose that comes over the shoulder. So this insulation that I had, that was what I stripped off of the the hose and I wrapped it around my forearm, tied it off, clipped a piece of the the metal carabiner through it to, to twist it up and tighten it down. But I held the knife to my arm and as soon as the metal touched my skin, I understood that it was a slow act of suicide. That was the, the way that the words came to my, into my head. I, I recognized that I would perhaps get free, but bleed to death way before I could ever get all the way out to my truck, let alone driving 60 miles down a washboard winding dirt road in order to even get to where there's a payphone. Uh, of course, cell phones, and I didn't have a satellite phone. Just, there's, there's no connectivity out there. And I'm curious, both physically and emotionally, the range and what I imagine physically, 
I know you're not sleeping, right? So you begin to hallucinate. There's exhaustion. So if you can sort of at this juncture, where are you physically and what is the emotional range that, that you're going through? Physically, I'm, I'm still hanging in there by this point. It's, it's really, only, I've been out in the desert for, uh, let's say, about 30 hours uh, now, in the middle of the afternoon on the second day, uh, that the effects of dehydration and starvation and, and hypothermia are only beginning to set in. Where I was trapped, the, the high temperature would be in the uh, around 50 degrees. It was kind of like a, a wine cellar effect. It just, it didn't, it didn't get much warmer than that, even during the day when it could be 80 degrees up on the mesa tops uh, out in the sun. But where I was, the cumulative effect of this is that I was losing about six, seven pounds uh, out of my 160-pound frame when I became trapped. But that's that has not started to add up to much yet. The sleep deprivation, not being able to sleep, again, that's that's only beginning to have to create issues for me. It was more the emotional state and, and perhaps the psychological state that I was in that made the greatest transition on the second day. It left me by three o'clock that afternoon, understanding that I was no longer standing in the bottom of this canyon. I was actually standing in my grave. There was nothing that was going to get me out of there. Cutting my arm off was just going to I bleed to death before I could even possibly get to a place where I could be rescued. And so I got my video camera out. And that was both a preliminary low point in the experience for me, as well as this incredibly powerful and beautiful moment where I got in touch with what was truly important in my life. Because as I turned that camera on and I held it up in front of me and I asked just whoever finds this, please get it to my parents. And I gave their name and address, Don and Larry Ralston, Centennial, Colorado. And then I started talking to them. And I was choking on my words a little bit, but it was to look into that lens and say, mom, dad, I love you. I'm sorry. I love you. I go out looking for adventure and trying to prove something about myself that I'm, I'm good enough. And it's just so dumb. Sonia, please do great things with your life and bring honor to our family. I love you. And so it was there as I'm looking into that camera and talking to the most important people, my parents, my sister, and saying the most important things that I think you can imagine saying, that was where I discovered that it was, it was not just the will to live that was going to keep me going, but it was, it was the will to love. The connection that I was experiencing to reach out and to, to tell my loved ones that I love them, grateful for them. And it would go on to include all these memories. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a will and testament and a, a eulogy and a, a goodbye all, all wrapped up in one. But the gratitude that I felt and that I was able to express, it actually left me smiling at times on that tape. And that was what would play the greatest role, the most important role for what would happen over the, the coming days. Because yes, as the night would come, the second night, uh, shivering, hypothermic, as the, the, to that 55 degree kind of uh, you know, high temperature would drop down to just above freezing air blowing, wind blowing down through the canyon. Uh, I was in shorts and a t-shirt, just convulsing for nine hours and shivers. And I know you record the message for your family, and I know you carved your birth date and then the date in the wall, thinking that that would be your, your death date eventually. Mm-hmm. Were you at peace with the fact that this was going to be 
the end of your life. How are you sort of reconciling what is happening emotionally? <laughs> it was struggle. Uh, I would say peace eventually came, but that was something I only arrived at very close to the end. Uh, that day after day, as I was there, as these hours clicked over and the the second night turned to the third day, I came back to the idea, okay, well, I've, I wasn't specifically aware of how much body weight I was losing, but that I knew that I was being stripped away quite rapidly by by my situation. I'd already been out there for 48 hours. I started to reconsider the calculus of this, <laughs> the, the, okay, the probability of, of dying on the way out of here, as, as high as that is, that starts to look pretty good compared to the certainty of dying in this spot. So if I don't do anything, I'm dead. If I, the one thing I still haven't tried that I could keep working at is to amputate my arm. And, and so on the third day, I put the tourniquet on and I started trying to saw into my arm using the this three inch long blade of my, my pocket knife that, that uh, fortunately had, had dulled against the boulder. And so it couldn't even cut the hair off of the skin, let alone get through the skin. So there was this excitement that, that would, you know, I got all riled up, like, okay, I'm going to do this. And like, ah, sawing at my arm. And then the despair that hit as I realized, like, ah, this is so pathetic. I can't even, I can't possibly even cut through the skin. What, what am I going to cut my arm off? The, that, And so the third day there, there was this rapid swing, but the, the tape, the video recording that I was making, I would use that as a, as a prop. I would connect with my family and my friends by looking into that lens and I would feel lifted up. The love that I was connecting with buoyed me from the despair of knowing that I was going to die here. The third night comes is equally as bad. There was a cold front coming over the desert. Each night actually got a little bit colder. The fourth day, I, I have this, again, this grand emotional swing as I, as I realized that you don't just have to hold a knife like a saw, you can actually hold it like a dagger. <laughs> and the, I, I liken it to the sound effect of the movie Psycho, that like the shower curtain gets ripped open and <laughs> and I stabbed myself in my arm. This euphoria flooded through me because like, ah, I did it. I, I, I'm gonna, I can do this now. I'm going to get out of here. Except then as I'm gathering information, probing the tip of the knife blade around inside my arm and it touches something hard, I realize that the bone, and I'd sooner be able to slice through the boulder than the cut through the bone. And so therefore, like, how can you cut off your arm with a knife that's too dull to cut through the bone? You can't. The pit that I emotionally fell into at that point then was again only countered by turning on the video tape uh, and and talking to my family again it was this this swing that that would go from being solely focused on just the, the fact that i'm so far gone that there's not even desperation anymore it's just depression and sadness this is how this is going to end and then the other opposite end of the spectrum would be as i talked about what i was grateful for it completely displaced that depression and uh, the lesson I took from that is, is even I felt it happening in, in moment by moment when I would talk into the camera was that you cannot simultaneously hold profound gratitude and depressing despair in your heart at the same time. There's, there's, there's only room for one of those things. And if you choose gratitude, you can effectively choose your mindset. 
I found myself smiling and feeling thankful for the life that I'd had, the, the relationships that I'd been blessed with in my life. And the fact that you had the camera as the visual aid, as the prop to, you know, be the vessel of that, to look to, to speak to, to know that, you know, because as you imagine, right, that you are in fact looking into the eyes of your family and friends. So the fact that that camera was there for you, I wonder if you've ever thought about the absence of it and what that would have, you know, for all that it, that it represents at this time. Yeah, because I mean, what it, what it really represented was the value of relationship and what was important in my life. And, and, and it was the opposite of the, the person I had turned myself into by becoming this hardcore, extreme venturer athlete. Uh, that uh, Just realizing like, whoa, what in some ways, like maybe what a misdirection or how un, underappreciated maybe I've, I've made those loved ones feel because of the choices that I'd made in my life. And yeah, it... Um, there's a lot of things about my experience that if you were to change one thing or anything, like if I had had a sharper knife or if I hadn't had the camera, or if I had been trapped where there was standing water as opposed to in a dry place in the canyon, different weather while I was there, that a flash flood could have come through and wiped me out. Or if I'd been with a friend, I mean, like if I'd had a jacket, there's, there's so many things that if you change them, the story isn't what it is. So the days are passing. Eventually, you have a vision and in your sort of dream sleep state, I believe. But share with me this yet again, another pivotal moment during your time in the canyon. Yeah, as, as we get into the fifth day and, and kind of prefaced about the, the experience of, of finding peace, I, I, I went through a process uh, where I realized it's not up to me anymore. And I, I started experiencing more of the, really, I would say like the metaphysical and the spiritual aspect of, of, my, of my time there as, as the time went on, because I wasn't able to sleep, uh, that I was awake every minute. Of, of all of those 127 hours that I was eventually there. But then on the fifth day, clock rolling in at 105 hours, 110 hours, like that, I, I recognized that it wasn't up to me. And by being able to, to let go of the pressure of control that, oh, I, if I just try harder, I can guarantee the outcome of this situation. That's the kind of person I generally am. I just, I, I'm very driven and, and kind of rigid. And it's, it's as much a strength as it is a weakness. <laughs> but to be the opposite of that was what actually brought me peace. And, and the peace that then extended from, from just being able to, to let it be. That was what carried me into the, the fifth night where I etched my, yeah, my name, my, my death date into the into the wall of the canyon. And at a time where I was, I was drifting out of consciousness, but I was still, I was still standing up. So it wasn't, it was more like a daydream of, of sorts, but it, this out of body experience where just the delirium and bleary mental composure that I it was, I was losing my grip. And, and this hallucination takes over where I see myself leave the canyon and I'm walking into a living room where there's a little boy who's playing with a truck. He's wearing a red polo shirt. I remember all the vivid details. There were sliding glass doors at the other side of the, of the living room, a wood floor, light coming in. And he was making a little noise. And then he drops the truck and comes running over to me where I, I see myself scoop him up with my left hand and a handless right arm. And I pick him up, up to where we're looking into each other's eyes. And he's brilliant 
beautiful blue eyes, uh, blonde haired boy uh, that he's, he's looking at me with, with this expression on his face without saying anything, either of us in this, in this vision that I was having, but it was just like, daddy, let's play. And the, the feeling I had in my, in my chest was of, of being home and, and this being yeah, my son, uh, just love. And then it all blinked away. It was gone. In the next moment, I was back and shivering, convulsing again as I, every night. But that night, I think it got down to 34 degrees. And just how awful that was. I couldn't wait. I really, I was ready to die. And, but that boy showed me that I was not ready to die. And a few hours later, as I came through the dawn, and arrived over the desert, and I was still there because of that that child. He helped me see the dawn. I'd, I'd I'd actually even said that I wasn't going to see. A few hours later, then still stuck there. Like, okay, this this future son that I just had this premonition of that's going to happen in my life. But great, how do I get out of here? I'm still stuck here. And then this light bulb. I mean, it was like stadium lights going off over my head <laughs> that I understood that you don't have to use the knife to cut the bone here and use the boulder, use the boulder, break the bone. And this, like the mechanical <laughs> engineer, you know, once more took over like, oh yeah, torque, right? And if you can imagine, yeah, like a, a two by four and a table vice, so you just bend it enough and then snap. And that's what I did. Uh, I started pushing against the rock. I bent my my arm down. I, the pain spiked. I kept pushing harder and harder until this crack echoed in the canyon, and I knew that I I broken the bone. Thereby was I was going to do this. Now I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to get a hug from my mom. I'm going to get home. I'm going to see that little boy someday. And I should say that in the scripted. Hollywood version of this moment in your life. People, you know, have passed out in the movie theater watching it. So we can only imagine in real <laughs> life and what you say in the, the press conference after. And I also heard you say, you know, with the filmmakers, how critical it was that, that they captured the smile on James Franco, the actor, when he does this, because it was, in fact, a euphoric moment for you. I was beaming the biggest smile that I think I'd ever smiled in my life, as especially as then I, I of course, there are two bones in your forearm, uh, so I had to repeat that process again. And then, but that smile got even bigger, and and then as I was cutting my arm, and I got through to where there was the nerve, and it was just to touch the nerve was like sticking a fork in a light socket, severing it was like thrusting my arm into a vat of molten metal uh, that it just vaporized my arm up to my shoulder, but coming through that and taking a few deep breaths. And now that smile was even bigger. And so that's, I, you know, I go back to the, the thing about like, how do people know me? Would like introduce yourself here. I'm the guy that cut his arm up. But, but I, what I love emphasizing is that when I tell this story, it's the story about the guy who was smiling when he cut his arm off. Because that to me just, it says everything I think that, that you need to understand that this was not horrific at all, but it was the most beautiful experience that I had ever had in my life. Coming through, yes, the most intense sensations, but again, separating out the pain. When I almost passed out, it was not from the pain at all, but rather in the moment when I finally cut the last piece of skin and all of a sudden my life was possible again. And if you take every moment of joy and happiness and delight and pleasure, everything that you've ever lived through that, that, that brought a smile to your face, and you 
took it all and put it all together in one moment when everything was possible. It was kind of like this big bang of the, the collapse. I'd lost all of it. And then boom, it was all there again in my life. And yeah, that that's too much to handle. <laughs> that was why I collapsed and my knees buckled and my body kind of fell into the wall of the canyon. Uh, but I was able to, to pick myself back up and, and I was free. I, I'd stepped out of my grave and into my life again. And I know the entire process of dislodging your arm was about an hour. Is that right? It was an hour and four minutes. But eventually you lost, I think, 25% of your blood. You're going off Mm -hmm. adrenaline at this point. Obviously, you're dehydrated. You're sleep deprived. You have not eaten. There's significant loss of blood. So you climb out of the slot canyon. You repel down a 65-foot cliff and then make it six of the eight miles back to where you had left your car, obviously losing blood and all of this one-handed, and you stumble into a family. Tell me about the rescue and and this this next chapter in your saving yourself and being saved. I'm losing blood. I have to repel over the cliff. I get to a water source. I'm able to drink almost a gallon. I I fill up three more liters to take with me. I've lost almost 40 pounds uh, total uh, as now I'm starting to replenish it with some water, but that I get to where I meet this family after hiking for six, six miles uh, on my own. It's been five hours since I amputated my arm, but still with the tourniquet has been drip, drip, drip. And <laughs> this father, uh, mother and, and 11 year old son, they helped me make it another half mile down through the canyon. They they were going in to see these petroglyphs that are protected by the Park Service in the canyon, uh, in the lower part um, that's, that's actually called Horseshoe Canyon. And we come around a corner and I'm having a heart attack from the dehydration, the blood loss, the combined effects of all of this. It's just my heart is beating, but there's nothing pumped through my circulatory system. I'm about to pass out and I realize that <laughs> that it's not just my heart making all this noise in the canyon, but it's a helicopter is, is circling overhead. Uh, it, it lands, and as I climb into the back seat of it, that I, I understand that this didn't happen just by happenstance, but was, and I learned from the the sheriff's deputies in the back seat as the Department of Public Safety pilot you know, flies us to the hospital that my mom had spearheaded an entire search and rescue operation that resulted in just in the minutes before I bled to death, in the minutes before that helicopter ran out of fuel, that we crossed paths in the bottom of that canyon and got me to yeah, a trauma ICU, uh, eventually being medevac to Colorado, where several surgeries before I even regained consciousness. And the first thing that I have a memory of uh, from coming to after after having been wheeled into the ICU in Moab, and now I'm in Colorado, but that my mom was standing over me and she she holds my left hand in hers. She starts sobbing. I'm sobbing. And I, I look up and I finally am able to say exactly what I started off in, on that videotape by saying, I love you. I'm sorry. I love you. And she squeezed my hand again so hard, I thought I was going to lose my other hands. And then she she said, if it hadn't been a broken leg that kept you out in the desert all this time, I swore you were going to have two broken legs before I was done <laughs> with you. And that was really just then the, the transition into the next phase. And, you know, you've said, obviously, this is a 
watershed moment that you are not the same Aaron you were before and after. So who emerges? A great question, because uh, for a while, I think I learned the wrong lesson about this. I, as, as much as uh, profound as it was to, to understand, as the boulder had given me all of these gifts uh, of understanding what was important to me, what was possible for me, you know, what, I'm, what am I made of, what, what am I capable of, and to understand what's extraordinary about being alive, like you think about that smile. And yet what I did was I just, okay, recovery, surgeries, prosthetic devices, developing the assisted and adaptive kind of tools that I would need in order to get back to the life that I had art, that I had been living. And so for those first couple years, really, my focus was still a lot more on what I was doing rather than how I was relating with, with people because I wanted to finish that project uh, that I still had 14 of the, the 59 mountains left. And I did finish. It took me two more winters to, until I stood on the, the last of all of those 14ers in the winter solo. And there it was that I realized that I hadn't really done it solo at all. To understand what the people in my life had given me, especially since my amputation, to build me back and to, to get me to where I could go back to doing these things. But to understand the the costs that had come along with it too. And and the if you can only imagine the the strain that it put on my mom to let me go back to to continue climbing. And I still climb. I mean it, it's still it's 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 a lifelong part of me, but the the purposes are invariably different today. And that that transformation has been most of what's happened for the last you know, 15 plus years was after I finished that project, it was okay, and now it's time to start living towards those lessons that you learned in the canyon. Life is not just about what you do, but it's about how, who you are and how you relate and how you love others. And, and of course, I mean, if you could, you can easily guess that uh, you don't get to be divorced without having yeah, recognized that I'm still stumbling my way along on this path of life. But that I, I feel that that is what the transformation, where it began, was to say, okay, now it's time to live differently. And the boy that came to you in the canyon, eventually there was a boy that would come to you in life outside the canyon, your real life. So can you tell me about that? Yeah, his name is Leo. <laughs> and he's uh, just about to turn 12, blonde hair and blue eyes. And that vision came true as it was. In fact, he he was born just as we were filming the, the movie in 2010. And at the very end of the film, uh, he's he's a little baby, about a month and a half old, uh, sitting on, on our laps uh, there with now my ex-wife. Um, and, and she and I are on much better terms, I, I should say. It's the custody issue has been over my daughter with a, and, and her mom, but that's that's my growth point today. And as as much uh, being a father, that that's it's no longer enough to be out on an adventure and, and say like, ah, oh, it's okay, Aaron. You know, you'll get through this. You'll survive. <laughs> it's more about learning the lesson of like, okay, sometimes it's it's time to to back off, um, to turn around, to, that it's not being so rigid or driven. You know, again, finding that balance between the control or the surrender or the acceptance or the resistance. And that's where I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm putting a lot more of my awareness and my attention on it today. 
Yes, yes. So I want, I'm going to go back a little bit on this one, but you know, we talked about it. You ended up at the time, the world media turned and all eyes were on you. I was actually working at the time for NBC and Tom Brokaw, who you would eventually end up sharing your story with for the first time. And that journey, I know your arm was retrieved by park rangers. I think it took 13 rangers and a hydraulic jack. <laughs> yeah. And they uh, they returned it to you cremated. But I also want you to set the stage for waking up inside the hospital with the whole world waiting outside to hear from you. Yeah, it uh, it was surreal. Um, I mean, first off, just being alive in, in those moments with my mom and the incredible amount of pain that I was in, that was, that was how I knew it wasn't a dream because if you can be in that much pain, then you, you still have to be alive, Aaron. But the first, one of the first things I saw in the hospital room was that the television was on and the little Chiron at the bottom with the crawl was going across that said, Colorado hiker who amputated your arm in Utah Canyon in critical condition. <laughs> Wait a minute. You know, kind of looking around the ICU. I guess that's me, but why? Why am I on CNN? Why does anybody care about this? And, and reconciling, oh, because we need stories like this. Because we're all at a place at various times in our lives where we are the ones who are trapped, that that rock is on us, that in the long term, the boulders, they're what cause us to grow, to mature. If we are open to those lessons, it turned my life inside out and upside down and, and, and at the same time also propelled me into to becoming the person that I am here to become. So when it came to, to talking at the press conference or having the, all those media opportunities and going on, and I, I got to, to be on Dave Letterman's program and that was super fun for me because I always looked up to him that all of the interviews and the opportunity to write a book and it became a bestseller and then to have it turned into a film and that it was nominated for Oscars and it's just like, what a ride. <laughs> but the, beyond just the kind of, I don't know, the, the titillation of it is is more about it's about the meaning behind it, and that I feel like that this story happened to me so that I can give it to others so that they might be affected, and and it's been the most meaningful part of it when I hear from somebody that I read your book at a time when I was feeling suicidally depressed and it saved my life, or I saw your movie when I was going through a dark time. Or my mom just got diagnosed with, with brain cancer and we found out she's only got a few months to live, but she's coming home. And when I heard you talk in Boston, it told me that this was not the worst thing, but the best thing that's happened for us, that we would have this time together. And that that's, I feel like, yeah, that's why I'm here. So when you talk about the boulders since divorce, depression, the loss of your father, what are the actions or the ways of being that get you through those boulders? Sometimes it's to it's to prompt myself with that very that very idea that rather than simply experiencing the burden of those moments to try to conceive that there might be some blessings in there that when when something is upsets me because like, oh, there's some great disappointment or that there's a, some disaster that's unfolding. But to ask myself, how can I use this? How can I, how can I find some advantage in this adversity? That it doesn't always work. And I do, I do a whole lot. I mean, counseling, journaling, 
wilderness walks, uh, you know, calling up my, my girlfriend, uh, <laughs> picking up our <laughs> little dachshund puppy and getting some face licks. <laughs> that there's, there's any number of ways. Sometimes it's a, it's, it's coming back to some of the things that I've, I've tried to learn, like, okay, one step at a time, Aaron, just one step at a time. Like, like the mantra that I had as I hiked my way out from the amputation, just one more step, one more step. Sometimes that's, it's just, it's a perseverance. Like, okay, I just need to, going to move through this. Um, it's about being accepting that I'm not going to be at my very best all the time. And that's okay. And that it's, you know, so many people have realized in the last year and a half, it's okay to not be okay too. There's this other idea of and that I come back to time and again, that yes, there can be difficult circumstances, emotions, uh, that there's a lot of stress and darkness. And there's also the light. There's also the joy uh, that a mountain cannot exist with only a sunny side. It also has to have a dark side, a shadow side. Otherwise, it, it cannot be. And so sometimes to realize that the darkness is what holds the kind of the space is sort of uh, like, I don't know, one of those Rorschach kind of images of like, is it a vase or is it two faces? That, that the, the, the negative is what gives potentiality to the positive in our lives and to, to welcome all of it because it's going to be there. <laughs> you can choose to resist it, but oftentimes resistance just breeds suffering. To accept that, okay, this is what is. I've heard it said that, that the more that we can accept what is, the more peace that we can have in our lives. And so that's, um, that's, those are some of the things that sometimes help me. And of course, there are also days where it's like, yep, today was just not my day. And it's going to be a lot of tears and I'm going to fall asleep and hope that tomorrow is maybe a little different. And, and if it is great, then, you know, this too shall pass if not. So. That's all so awesome. It's beautiful and it's real and it's true and and needed right now. Well, thank you, Aaron. This conversation has been a gift to me and I'm really excited to share it with our listeners. Well, I appreciate it, Kimmy, so much. Thank you. I, I got to say, I was, uh, it brought me to tears a couple of times too. <laughs> so. All right. We're going to end with a little something fun. You game? Oh, uh, yeah. So this is a lightning round. So I'm just going to share a question or the beginning of a sentence and you can finish it for me. Great. Favorite curse word. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, my, um, Do you curse? <laughs> I didn't motherfucker. know. <laughs> I mean, yes, there's, the answer there's is yes. a few choice ones. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Favorite childhood cereal. Oh, uh, gosh, it was, the, it was what I was never allowed to have, Fruity Pebbles. <laughs> Biggest vice? Wow. You know, anxiety, I have to say. <laughs> it's kind of a weird one, but I, I tend to live in that a little bit. Favorite quote? Mm. Oh, I, I always love about, from the Teddy Roosevelt uh, about that is not the critic who counts, but the, the man in the arena is, who knows uh, if he knows defeat, uh, he knows the grandness of the effort. I, I believe, I'm, I'm kind of synthesizing there. I apologize that I don't have it perfectly memorized. It's the daring that, greatly quote. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He knows, yeah, fails, but to, to, yeah, to dared greatly. Yes. Greatest hope for my children. 
Oh my! Uh, that, that, that they might that they might grow up to to not have all the neuroses that I do. <laughs> Aaron, thank you again. And today's charity that this episode will be benefiting, can you share the charity and a little bit about why? Yeah, thank you for that too, because uh, the Wilderness Workshop here in Colorado, uh, they, they work to protect uh, some of our, our great national public lands, uh, national forests, uh, wilderness areas in Colorado and to provide clean air, water, recreation opportunities, wildlife habitat, uh, buffers for uh, species extinction and climate change. And that it's, it's some of the, the great work that I've been involved with both here and, and in other states too, but the Wilderness Workshop focuses on, on Colorado, my home state here. So thank you for, for helping to support them. And I'm grateful for that. Great. Well, we are excited to support them today. And thank you again, Aaron, and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you so much, Kimmy. As a reminder, if you like today's episode or the podcast in general, I hope you will consider rating and reviewing All the Wiser. We would be honored to have you play a part in reaching our goal of 1,000 reviews. It's impossible not to be inspired by Aaron's story, but I hope you will remember it the next time you need to muster a little more courage, no matter how difficult the situation you are faced with. And finally, today's episode supports Wilderness Workshop. Their mission is to protect and conserve the wilderness and natural landscapes of the Roaring Fork Watershed, the White River National Forests, and surrounding lands in Colorado. You can learn more about their work at wildernessworkshop.org. Thank you for listening and take care of yourself and those you love. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, And our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.